What is the purpose of politics? Sounds like a very meta question to be asking two weeks before an election, but as we come up on the most important event in our political calendar for 2020, I think it's a question that we need to step back and ask ourselves. To my mind, there are essentially two approaches to politics, and we can see very starkly the contrast between them. If we look at recent times in American history, even times in American history uh, that go all the way back to the founding, and now, if there is a genuine shift in politics that has really occurred in recent times, it is a shift from a politics of persuasion to a politics of self-expression. I'm Dr. Noltian, and this week's episode of Blind Politics will dig into this very innocuous sounding, but actually very important shift in American politics and some of the consequences, mostly negative, that it has for our country, for our politics, and for the ability to create meaningful change in our current system. Give a listen. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government here at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast don't represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider, and you can find us on Facebook at Blind politics. We are still hoping to get that Ask Me Anything podcast done. So if you have political questions, please do post them on that thread and we will try to move it again to the top of the Facebook page here fairly soon. Today I want to step back. We're coming up on the election. The election is very close to here. We probably don't know anything more about the election today than we did the last time we did an election podcast. And I'm tired of doing podcasts that are specifically focused on the election. I can guarantee you, shortly after the election, I'll be doing a post-mortem election podcast. I don't think I'll be doing another election podcast between now and then, because frankly, we're now in the time where uh, I don't see much changing the trajectory. Now, that doesn't mean that we know what's going to happen. But what's going to happen is probably going to happen. I don't know that there's much at this point that's, that's going to change the state of the election. If Trump wins, he probably was always going to. If Trump loses, he probably was always going to at this point. Or if not always, then it, certainly by now it's probably baked into the cake. We can't say that 100%. There are a surprising number of voters who decide late. But it does seem like we are coming to the end of this. What really jumped out at me today, and this is something I've been thinking about that just kind of crystallized as I was struggling to think of a topic, is some of the, the debate that I expect to see in the future, in the near future. And this is an all-out attack on the idea of civility, on the idea of civil discourse coming from the left. I think that the side, the, the line has already been set up. You know, the idea from the left that, you know, when we talk about civility, it just it's just people in power, you know, sort of imposing a sense of politeness to keep people out of power down, right? 
And uh, it's what's hilarious about this is now the sort of critical theory left has decided that this is their idea, that they're the ones who just came up with this. And this is a sort of brand new idea when the reality is that the, that's exactly what Trump said in 2016. That is exactly what Trump supporters said in 2016. They said the problem with civility is that that's just a way to shut up conservatives. Right. So we've now come to a situation in which. On both the left and the right, both sides of them, trademark. If you if you have a bingo card for blind politics, you can you can check off your both sides of them box here. But now we have on both the left and the right people saying the problem is that we're too nice to our political opponents. The problem is that we just don't fight them hard enough. I guarantee you within the next year, one of the anti-racism scholars, Ibrahim X. Kendi or, or Robin D'Angelo would be my bet is going to come out with a book or an essay or a speech or something that says the problem with white progressives is that they're too nice to white conservatives. They're aiding and abetting racism because they're too nice to white conservatives. At the same time, somebody's a Trump supporter is going to come out with and say, you know, the problem is that just we just just didn't fight the left hard enough. And if we just fought the left harder, we would have won. And I, I would predict that both of those will come out within a reasonably short period of time of one another next year. How do, how do we get here? Well, I think we get here because both, and this is sort of not probably where you're expecting me to go with this, because both the people who are pro and anti-civility, the people who are pro and anti-civil discourse, the people who are pro and anti, you need to treat people who disagree with you with respect, have forgotten what the point of that approach to politics actually is. Because we've decided that there is a different purpose to politics now then was the purpose of politics that we've always kind of understood historically. And this is like a very Western, very modern 20th century American idea that I'm about to discuss. Going back to Aristotle, the understanding of politics is that politics is the art of persuasion. The whole point of political argument, of engaging in politics, is to persuade others to your side. That's the reason that we use politics and not war. Okay. War and politics are both trying to achieve the same means. They're trying to achieve certain specific ends. We can disagree about what those ends are, whether those ends are primarily moral ends or whether they're ends of power, international relations theorists in terms of war and domestic theorists in terms of politics will argue about what actually the, the point is until the cows come home. But the method of politics, has always been understood as persuasion. You need to convince people that they should agree with you. The whole point of politics is to convince people to agree with you. That's not the political environment that we have right now. That's not the, the motivation. That's not how people are winning arguments. That's not how people are getting elected. That's not why people are getting into politics. And that's not how people are doing politics. We've now decided that the purpose of politics is self-expression. The reason that we engage politics is not to convince other people is because it says certain things about ourselves and we expect our politics primarily to be an expression of our most cherished identity, not our most cherished beliefs, not our most cherished values, but who we are. So politics as self-expression. And this is where we start getting into a very different mode of politics because then politics becomes less about 
persuasion, and more about branding. Then politics becomes less about how do I convince people that don't agree with me that they should agree with me. And it becomes more about how do I convince people that voting for me makes them the right kind of person. Okay, probably this is attributable to a shift in the way advertising happens, at least in part. If you've ever watched a, a pitch from a 1950s era commercial, they're telling you buy my product because, and then they're giving you a long list of laundry list of, of reasons why you need what they're selling. Why it's better than its competitors. Why, you know, people like you have benefited from it, those types of things. If you watch recent commercials, half the time, if you just listen to the words that they're saying, which is how I watch commercials, this podcast is called Blind Politics for a reason, you would have no idea what the commercial is selling. Like, think about a car commercial, okay? Most car commercials don't actually tell you that much about the car. You know, you'll get some slogan about how the destination is the journey, and then, you know, dramatic music as someone's like wrestling a polar bear. In my head, this is what's happening in all car commercials. Dramatic, like the destination is the journey, Toyota or whatever. And then somebody's wrestling a polar bear on screen. That's, that's what's happening to me in a car commercial. Or, you know, somebody is climbing a mountain or, you know, going to an elegant, like it's all these types of things that signal to you the kind of person that you want to be drives this kind of car, wears this kind of clothing does these kinds of things, right? So you're living vicariously through the ad and it's like, ah, I want to be cool like that person so I should buy this thing, right? And this is now seeped into politics. Politics essentially is not about convincing people of ideas. It's not about convincing people of policy arguments. It's all about what kind of person does your political affiliation say you are? It is, it is a pure politics of the type of person that you want to be or the type of person that you don't want to be. Going back to the podcast we did a couple weeks ago about that thing that calls itself a debate, this might have something to do with why we don't actually have candidates that are capable of articulating a coherent position on things. Because that's not actually what politics is about now. It's about who you are and being a certain type of person, and that's really the point of the whole thing. Right? It's about, I want to be one of the, the cool kids or one of the good people, people or whatever that might be. Absolutely no issue better exemplifies this than the issue about the protests, uh, the kneeling protests during NFL games. You could interpret a football player kneeling during the national anthem as prayer. You could interpret it as an indictment of systemic racism. You could interpret it as, you know, an, an act that is, is not patriotic. You could interpret it as some combination of all of those. You can interpret it just about any one of those ways, right? And all of that kind of has less to do with actually any concrete thoughts that you may or may not have about issues of policing. At no point in any of the conversation about people kneeling or not kneeling or standing or flags or national anthems or any of this stuff with the symbolic politics of, about football. Has there been one single substantive conversation about police reform? 
There have been very few substantive conversations about police reform in, in the wake of the George Floyd thing. Some people have tried, but most of it has been, let's talk about who we are as a country. Rather than, here's a, here's a problem, here's how I think we should fix it, let me convince you that I'm right. right. We're not even trying to persuade people on these issues. We are entirely trying to signal to people about the kind of people that we are based on our politics. It's not just about race, by the way. I was doing a podcast recently for my, my church, and we're doing a, a series on podcasts, and I said, it's important to think, as you're engaging with politics, to think about solving the issue, not having the issue. And kind of indicated there for, you know, for, for a church audience that one of the problems right now is that people generally would rather have the issue than solve the issue. This is basically the dynamic, whatever your favorite issue is, you're probably frustrated right now with the people on your side because they're not doing anything about it. Everything about it is symbolic. Okay, if you're pro-life, you're probably frustrated that the Republicans had Congress for two years and couldn't defund Planned Parenthood. Couldn't turn any of Trump's executive orders on pro-life issues into permanent legislation when you had the majority to do so. Coun't get the Born Alive Act or the 20, uh, 20-week Act or any of those acts passed. Not a priority, right? Democrats, same thing on immigration, by the way. Democrats couldn't even, they, they had a super majority in Congress at one point and couldn't get the dreamer thing done because it just wasn't a priority for them. It just hasn't been a priority. You know, any of these types of issues that we're talking about, race, race relations, racial issues, all these types of things, it's not a priority. And the way that you can see that it's not a priority is because people would rather make empty gestures about a given issue than accept a compromised piece of legislation that gets you part of the way that where you want to go. And see, when we start to have the idea that compromise is unacceptable, we may think that this is actually helping us get closer to our quote-unquote policy goal. But really, what it is indicative of is the idea that to compromise on politics is to compromise some core aspect of my identity. Because politics is about my self-expression, and I can't compromise who I am. Because as, as Americans, it's something that we fundamentally have now come to decide that, you know, to thine own self be true is the most important thing that you can ever have in your life. Which it's not, by the way. There are things that are more important than yourself. There are things that are more important than your identity. There are things that are more important than your sense of self-expression. And I feel like every everything that we do in politics right now, including what I just said, I feel like, and so I'm going to take that out. Everything we do in politics right now is an I statement. It's all about how I feel. It's all about who I am. And so, of course, there's no compromise. If you really care about solving the issue, anything that moves the ball in your direction is going to be seen as a good thing. So coming back to the issue of civility, which I said at the outset, why is this related? Because the whole purpose of civility is not, let's have a nice, polite political discourse. Okay, we've had very rambunctious political discourse in American history. This election is not even close to the most uncivil election that we've had in the past. 1888 was an election where literally there were no significant issues. So candidates were running around, uh, literally having parades, marching down city streets, chanting slogans about the other candidates, illegitimate child. Grover Cleveland, by the way, was the, was the candidate who, uh, who was accused of, of fathering a child out of wedlock. He still won the election. Both Hamilton and Jefferson accused one another of being traitors, or at least their, their agents in the press did in the 1790s. You know, 
Jefferson was a lily-livered Francophile and, and Ham Hamilton was a uh, would-be monarchist part of a, a conspiracy to hand the colonies back to England. So that's one of the issues that, that I, I would say, look, civility is not something that is 100% a distinctive of American politics at all times. But the purpose of civility of civil discourse, all those things, is that you can sort of create a common framework of, of respect in which you can try to convince people who don't agree with you about things. The, the idea being that it's sort of value neutral and that you can actually try to persuade based on that. Now, I, I think that calling for civility in the absence of persuasion, you can understand why people would say this is, this is an exertion of power. But the problem is not that people are calling for civility. The problem is that nobody's trying to persuade. There's no one's trying to persuade. You have to have persuasion in, in order for politics to be effective. Part of the challenge here is not just that politics is about self-expression, but the corollary that necessarily comes from that. Because if politics is about self-expression, if who you are is in some sense intrinsically defined by how you vote, then it is equally true that somebody who votes opposite from you is someone who is an opponent or perhaps even an enemy in a sense. So politics is self-expression primarily. Then to engage in politics is essentially to in, engage in a, almost a form of, of existential conflict. Because if your side loses, then you personally have lost in some sense. It's not just that you're invested in it. It's not just that your idea is lost and you think your ideas are important, but you personally suffer when the wrong side loses. It, it becomes an existential crisis. And if that becomes the case, then politics essentially becomes a form of warfare. It's, it becomes a war for survival. We, we move into what, what Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, because politics essentially becomes about the right to exist. Stepping back to a focus on persuasion moves us into a different category of discussion. It moves us into a very different understanding of what's happening as we engage in politics. Because to effectively persuade, first of all, you have to understand where the other person is coming from. You have to have a baseline point of understanding of sort of what the other person's perspective is and where they're coming from. If you don't understand somebody, you can't convince them. You can't persuade them. Right? Persuasion is different than marketing uh, in, in politics because when you operate in a marketing perspective from an advertising perspective, and this is maybe another, another shift. Cass Sunstein talks about this a little bit. It used to be there was this idea that there was sort of a mass market. And that there were a few firms that were competing in sort of a mass market. Or even if, if any firm was going to compete, you had to sort of compete for a mass market. So there's more of that general persuasion type of advertising. Increasingly, you've got more and more niche markets. And the internet really feeds into that. Uh, everything sort of becomes uh, niche. I read, I read a marketing book once where the guy basically said, now everybody's weird. Everybody's weird. Everybody's got their own, their own sort of niche. Politics is kind of becoming that way where you're... Your goal is increasingly not to try to persuade people that don't already agree with you. It's just generating as much enthusiasm for people who do agree with you as you can. 
and see who can generate the biggest army on election day. Right? The problem with that is that politics is not a niche market. It's a mass market. Politics is, again, from this sort of branding persuasion perspective, it's probably the last real mass market that exists. That being the case, if we start treating a mass market like a niche market, what do you get? You get polarization. Um, and you get increasingly unsatisfying choices that people have to choose between. And choosing between them becomes an existential statement about who you are. And there's a lot of problems with that. I think this is one of the things that drives the dysfunction in our politics. It leads to dysfunctional politics. So how do we change from a self-expressive to a persuasive ethic in politics? Right? So the first thing is you have to understand people that you're trying to persuade. The second thing is you have to actually put your argument in terms that they will understand it. You are trying to persuade them, so you have to go to them. So you have to show up, you have to understand them, and you have to try to persuade them based on their pre-existing framework. The key to persuasion in politics is you want to do as little work as possible. You want to find as much common ground as possible. You want to agree with that person as much as possible. You want to create as much of a common understanding as possible so that you can pin down where the point of disagreement is and convince them that by their own logic, by their own merits, on an understanding of their own principles and positions that underlie their position, they should side with you. That's persuasion. And you want to do as by as little work as possible. I mean, you want to persuade them of as few things as possible. You don't necessarily need to you want to try to change wholesale the underlying framework. right? You want to persuade on a, a very narrow issue or set of issues that you are particularly focused on. And that is, in fact, how politics is designed to work in a well-functioning political system. Now, part of that means that you have to establish a common framework for having these conversations. That's also increasingly difficult. And the increasingly, I would say, the greatest form of polarization is along religious lines. And I'm predicting that that's going to continue to be the greatest form of, of polarization, that all other forms of polarization will gradually start to fade into that. That you're going to see, you're already seeing polarization along religious lines among politically active white voters. It's one of the single most defining characteristics of, of for a politically active white person, whether they're Republican or Democrat, the most, the most defining characteristic of that is, do they go to church? It's not true in other groups, right? So that full polarization along religious lines has not happened yet. But I think it's coming. I think that increasingly there will be less secularism on the right and less religiosity on the left. That just overwhelmingly that's the trend. And there's no reason to think that trend's not going to continue. That makes things really complicated when you're trying to persuade. But it also makes things to a certain extent simpler. Because persuasion and conversion are very similar. And so when you're, when you're thinking about persuasion from that perspective, there is a similar aspect to conversion. And conversion, if you're going to actually try to go out and proselytize somebody, you actually have to do it from a position of a certain amount of sympathy. If you want to be effective at it. You have to kind of put yourself in their shoes to the greatest extent possible. Same thing goes for politics. The more you do that, the more effective you will be in actually persuading people. 
Here's the problem with all this. I don't know that persuasion actually is more effective in politics today because it seems like people want this politics of self-expression. Because if we didn't want that, presumably we'd do something else. Uh, in politics, in a democracy, you tend to get what you, what you want. You tend to get what you... Politicians don't drive the train on this. The, the market drives the train more often than not. So it seems like there's something in our society right now, in our mindset right now, that really self-expression is the highest good. It's more important than persuasion. And that being the case, um, ultimately, I want my politics to be sort of like my, my brand. I wanted to say the right things about, about who I am. And so you, you get into a lot of performance art as politics is performance art. You get into sort of this idea that you are performing your identity for political reasons, which is increasingly more and more the case. There are expectations on how your identity will be constructed based on your politics. Um, that can be tiring. You have to perform in a certain way for certain groups of people and be a certain kind of person. And it's very performative. There are certain expectations that come with that. And if you don't measure up to those expectations, people are going to suspect that maybe not, maybe you're not the right kind of person after all. Maybe you're not really one of us. Right? So it's like a bad combination of dysfunctional politics and dysfunctional like stuff that you would have seen in high school. We have the essentially high school clickization of politics. That's not a good thing. So I don't necessarily think that the answer to this is civility. Not because I think civility is bad, but because I think civility is secondary. It is a means of persuasion. I think the fundamental problem is that we've forgotten that the purpose of politics is to come up with policies that will work for the common good rather than to express yourself. Okay, Instagram and TikTok videos are where you express yourself. Politics are where we try to work together to fix the country, to do the things that need to be done for the country, right? Politics is not actually the proper mode or space for self-expression. The purpose of politics, again, is persuasion. And until we get that right, I, I see things continuing along this line of negative polarization, increasing partisanship, politics that is just basically performative and has nothing to do with actually trying to move forward substantially on the issues that face us. And there are some substantial issues that face us. But until we actually come to an agreement that we need to try to persuade people that don't agree with us on a given issue, on anything, we're not going to be able to address any of them. We can't even probably agree right now what the issues are, for the most part. And that makes things a lot more challenging moving forward. So we've got an election coming up in two weeks. And this is not going to be fixed, right? But what I, here's what I want to encourage you to do as we're watching sort of the run-up to this. Start noticing it. Start noticing the absence of persuasion and the degree to which politics is now becoming about self-expression. Because once you start noticing it, you can't really unnotice it. And you start to realize how deep the problem actually goes.
personally, I can't see, I can't see why you would want to express yourself through politics. I mean, politics is like not that cool. I, I mean, I think it's interesting, but I'm a hopelessly nerdy person. I'm not one of the cool kids. And so the idea that anybody would think that you need to like get your, your meaning or your self-expression or your identity in politics, I don't, I don't get it. Um, you know, brand yourself as one of the cool kids by the clothes you wear, by the car you drive, by all the other signals that you can say to say, I'm in this group and not in, don't do it by how you vote. Because that's really not indicative of, um, any kind of, so, or shouldn't be indicative of any kind of sort of social in-groupishness, right? That's not what it's, that's not, fundamentally, it's not what politics is for. And I think that starts to make a lot more of our problems look soluble. I did a couple podcasts this summer about racism and talked about sort of conservative and, and liberal approaches to issues, how conservatives tend to approach things from the perspective of gratitude and progressives more from the perspective of justice. So it is striking to me how much of the discourse right now about racism and anti-racism and all of that just comes out and says, if you have any gratitude for America, you're a racist. This is entirely self-expression and has nothing to do with persuasion. Okay, leaving aside the question of whether their policy remedies are good or they have any, because that's something that I would actually like us to talk about, is what are we trying to do from a policy perspective? And then also how are you going to get it through Congress? Because as mentioned in, a pre in previous podcasts, if you're not getting whatever your policy is through Congress, it probably isn't going to happen or at least isn't going to be made permanent. Okay, and if you're not talking about policy, you're not talking about politics. You're talking about something else. You're talking about identity, which is fine. But that's not really what we what we do in the political realm. Okay, it's not really about your self-expression, right? But so there's nothing that could be more calculated to turn off the people that you need to persuade to come your way on racial issues than saying, well, if you have any gratitude for or respect for the, the history of America, then you're a racist. You've just completely shut out everybody who disagrees with you from the conversation. And at a certain point, that's deliberate. That's no longer a an attempt. You're not you're not attempting to persuade. You're just sort of trying to box out your opponents. Well, here's the thing. Clearly, you don't have a majority of people that agree with you. If you did, probably Hillary Clinton would have won the presidency. Okay, you don't have a majority. You're never going to get a majority if you don't stop constantly trying to alienate everybody who disagrees with you. So if your goal is to actually try to move things forward and improve the issue, to solve the issue rather than having the issue, it's not going to get you anywhere. Okay, this is one of the frustrations I have sort of with the pro-life movement as well. Okay, I get it. It's a very strongly held conviction. But we probably need to not lead with the idea that abortion is murder and everybody who believes in it is a bad person. Because again, a majority does not agree with you on this subject. You need to convince them. You need to persuade them. And there are people who are making that argument. And maybe there are people sort of on the new anti-racist movement that are actually thinking about, gee, we probably need to try to persuade some conservatives of what we're trying to say. I've seen no evidence of this, but I will acknowledge that I'm not as plugged into that movement or literature as some other folks are. 
But I can tell you that a lot of the things that people think are conversation starters are actually conversation stoppers. When you start with your conversation with something that says to anybody who disagrees with me, you're a bad person for disagreeing with me, guess what? You're never going to persuade them. You're never going to persuade somebody starting that way. So at that point, persuasion is not your point. Your point is, I want to make myself feel like a better person by telling these other people how bad they are. Which is fine if that's your goal, but it's not going to get you very far in terms of actually building a permanent majority for your issue in politics. So I wouldn't recommend it. Again, it's great for self-expression. It probably makes you feel good about yourself. But I don't think it gets you where you want to go, politically speaking. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say either if you vote for Trump, you're a bad person, or if you don't vote for Trump, you're a bad person. Again, are you actually trying to persuade people to vote a certain way? Or are you just trying to say things about yourself that will make you feel better? Because one of those is effective in politics, and one of those is not. Imagine how the conversation goes differently, where if you say, look, I understand the reasons why you may have voted for Trump, or I understand the reasons why you don't want to vote for Trump. But here's why I think you should reconsider. It's a very different conversation starter than if you do or don't vote for this person, you're a bad person. So is it about civility? Is it about, um, you know, having having a more polite politics? I could, I, frankly, as long as we're consistent about it, I don't really care. We can have, we can have a politics where we're, um, you know, throwing invective each other like the 1790s, or we could have a sort of gentleman's agreement type politics of the 1950s. I don't really have a strong preference one way or the other. I think either one can work as long as we're consistent about it. But I can tell you one thing. Even in the 1790s, when they're throwing all of these scurrilous accusations at each other, they're writing pamphlets trying to persuade people that might not agree with them. If you read the Federalist Papers, keep in mind that they're written at a time of high partisanship. So that's what's different. Even at times of high partisanship in the past, there's been an attempt to persuade. There's no attempt to persuade happening right now. Nobody's even trying to make those arguments. I remember when Suicide of the West, Jonah Goldberg's book came out a couple of years ago. I want to say it was 2018. He starts out by saying, a disclaimer, there is no God in this book. He says that not because he doesn't believe in God, but because he's trying to persuade someone who is an atheist, who is a child of the Enlightenment and thinks the Enlightenment is great and, uh, you know, is, is sort of more on those lines. He's trying to persuade them of his case. And then, you know, a bunch of people on the right start attacking it and saying, well, this book is terrible because it, it doesn't, you know, show due deference to God and the Christian principle. Well, of course not. You're, you're trying to persuade someone. By definition, a persuasive argument means that you operate from within their hermeneutic. And I, just, I feel like there's just not that much interest in persuasion. In fact, trying to persuade people who don't agree with you is seen as treason. It's seen as you're betraying who you are. You're betraying the people on your own side by even talking to those dirty people over there. That's insane. That is an insane way to view politics. The whole point of politics, let's just go back like to the most basic level. If you're not winning elections, you're not doing politics correctly. If you're not trying to win elections, you're not doing politics correctly. And the easiest way to win elections is to find people who vote for the other person and convince them to vote for you instead, right? This is basic politics 101. You're not convincing a lot of people to vote for you by telling them that they're bad people. It is literally the equivalent of the street preacher who says, you're going to hell. 
Right now, you, you are going to hell, so you need to believe in Jesus. Tends to not work as well as like actually trying to build a relationship with people and proselytize that way. Right? This is a stereotype, it's a caricature stereotype for a reason, and yet we think that this is the most effective way to handle things in politics. I'm not even criticizing it. I mean, I, I am criticizing it from a moral perspective. But let's leave the morality aside of it. It's just not effective. You're just not going to move many voters that way. So what are we doing? Why are we, do, why are we doing it this way? I think we need to return to an ethic of persuasion. And I, I, civility to me is one mode of persuasion. If you want to persuade by having, you know, a more um, argumentative style, fine. But you need to actually be trying to persuade. And persuasion first and foremost means that you have to understand why pe where people are coming from and then convince them of your position with as little work as possible. You're not trying to convince them of everything. You're trying to convince them on a specific point. And then maybe from there, you build things out. That's how persuasion works effectively. That's where it's most effective. That's how it's most effective. We're not doing that right now. And I think that's part of the reason that politics are such a hot mess. I don't expect it to change in the short term. My hope is in the long run, that people realize whether or not they think there's a moral component of this, that it's not effective. Right now, as things stand, let's say the Democrats win tomorrow and they try to implement everything on the wish list of the progressive left. What's going to happen in 2022? They're going to lose the House in the biggest landslide in American history, lose ground in the Senate in 2022, and probably elect a Republican president in 2024. Or let's say Trump gets gets elected and tries to ram the entire conservative wish list down everybody's throats via executive order because he's probably barring some cataclysmic earthquake for the Democrats that we haven't seen. Trump's not taking the House back. So we'd have to do it completely by executive order. What's going to happen? Hard snapback in 2022 and 2024. And you get a Democrat who's to the left of Biden. So whoever wins this election, just by the virtue of the way that they will almost certainly conduct themselves over the next two years. And I'm not Nostradamus here. Like, I don't have a crystal ball to look into the future. But future performance is indicated by past performance. And based on the way the Democrats and the Republicans are, are, are performing right now, it's evident to me that whoever wins in 2020 is going to just get absolutely shellacked in 2022 and 2024. So that's something to look forward to. If you win, if your side wins the election and you start feeling like you're on top of the world and you have a permanent majority to enact all the things you want, here's a dose of pessimism. Winning this election probably means that you're going to lose the next one. We've been on this cycle for a while now. And the only way you're going to break it is by persuading people that don't agree with you. So my hope is that eventually somebody figures this out, right? This isn't like hard math. I'm not the best person in terms of math stuff, but I can figure out that if you're getting somewhere between 51 and 45% of the vote, you'd be a lot more effective if you could inch that up to like 55 or 60% of the vote. Because once you can get to like that 60% of the vote-ish area on something, you can you can actually make that thing happen and make it permanent. But you got to persuade. You have to actually try to persuade. So my hope is that we start to realize the politics of self-expression is a dead end. It's not going to get you anywhere. 
It will give you the temporary endorphin high of feeling good about yourself because you've demonstrated to God, the world, and everybody that you're the right kind of person. But in terms of actually moving the needle on any political issue, it's not going to get you anywhere. We are maxed out on that. And so then the question becomes, who's actually going to try to persuade people on the other side first? Morally speaking, of course, I think that there's, there's an argument for persuasion. Because if it's the right thing, if what you believe is correct, is morally correct, then there is a moral component to it. And advancing what you believe is the right thing to do. But you're not going to persuade people if you don't try to persuade people. If you're more interested in figuring out what politics says about you than figuring out how to convince somebody else to agree with you on politics... You are going to be tapped out at and maxed out at the kind of politics and the kind of election and the kind of back and forth that we have right now. That's going to be a wrap for this week's episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. I don't even know half the podcast providers that we're on right now, but look on your favorite one and you can probably find us. Please tell your friends, your family members, your undecided voters, your decided voters, your partisans, nonpartisans, bipartisans, or people who don't know anything about politics and don't really care about politics, but think, man, it would be great if there was a podcast that I could listen to that would make me think that maybe politics is not the worst thing in the world. You can point them here. I will be recording i'm not exactly sure what next week i'm really going to try to steer away from it we've got like two weeks left i'm really going to try to steer away from the election also on a personal note my wife is going to be giving birth to our son sometime in the next month or so and that's going to mean that things are going to be a little bit different from a podcasting perspective we may miss some time there may be a little bit of a hiatus so you know stick with us we'll be back and we will uh, I'll try to bring you the best analysis moving forward. I want to get some more guests on, but it's, it's hard to get folks right now because, frankly, everybody's involved in, in the election to one degree or another. But we'll get some folks. We will get some folks on the podcast to talk about all the diff- different permutations of what could be coming, uh, coming out moving forward. So uh, thanks again for listening and for Blind Politics. This is Dr. Nolte signing off.